Our passage this morning is Micah 4, 9 through 5, 1. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Nathan and I have the privilege of volunteering for a men's ministry, some of you know, called Lead with Character. And in addition to teaching about notable Christian men and leadership and the details of battles fought on the fields that are in front of us, Our friend Steve begins each morning of the trips with a Bible study. And my favorite series of these is from the Williamsburg trip, the Revolutionary War trip, his series on faithfulness in the crucible. Kids, a crucible is a container that you use to melt down hard substances, usually to purify them. In a crucible, things are put under intense heat, And the dross, the impurities, are burned off. And when the heat is taken away, they re-harden, but now without impurities, so that they're harder and stronger and more pure than they ever were before. All of this happens in the crucible. In the life that is to come, the not yet of last week's already not yet, God's people will live in perfect peace. In the life that is to come, we will be free from the effects of sin and the curse. No sickness, no struggle, no death. But here, in the lives you and I and Micah's hearers live every day, God's people live in the crucible. Every one of us will experience a crisis of some kind, usually more than one. Maybe you're going through one right now. In the oracles we've read this morning, Micah is connecting some dots for God's people. Out there is God's promised future. We know what will be then in that day. But we live in this day. And this day is a crucible. And our temptation is to disconnect them. After all, they couldn't be more different. 
I can believe God's promises. I can look forward to the world to come on another day. Right now, I've got a real mess on my hands, and I've got to get through this crisis. But Micah's exhortation is that instead of disconnecting the two, we take them together. And here's why. How we respond to times of crisis reflects what we believe. If you show me someone amid a difficult trial, from what they decide to do in that trial, from the reasons they give for their decisions, for what they say, for how they think about what's happening, I can tell you what they really believe. Micah turns the people's attention back to their present reality. Yes, Israel will be restored, but not yet. And there's a lot coming their way between now and then. The three oracles in this morning's text share a common structure. Notice that verses 9 and 11 and verse 1 of chapter 5 all begin with the word now. Each describes that now. Israel's current and future crises, life in the crucible. But each of these three oracles ends with a promise of God's redemption. I didn't read the one in chapter 5. That's next week. But as for you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata. For Micah, this connection is key. To thrive in the crucible, you've got to know with confidence what lies beyond it. And Micah is rebuking his audience. He's rebuking the Israelites because there should be a difference between the way believers and unbelievers act in a crisis. And when he looks at their behavior, he doesn't see those differences. He mentions three. First, in a crisis, faith groans with expectancy. It's important to acknowledge that we will face crises in this life. At times, our circumstances will give us cause for groaning. We will lose our jobs. Some of you have. We will get sick and injured. Some of you have. We will lose loved ones to death. Some of you have. When my friend Steve wrote his Bible studies on faithfulness in the crucible, what many of the men on the trip did not know was that he was going through the most difficult trial of his life, something I pray none of us ever have to experience. And this stuff hurts. It makes us groan. We don't do anyone any favors by suggesting otherwise. Even God, he doesn't, he doesn't expect us to act like this stuff doesn't hurt. Responding in faith doesn't mean playing pretend regarding the difficulties of life. How can your brothers and sisters in Christ pray for you and encourage you and help you if even you won't be honest about what's happening? It's okay to groan. But we can see in Micah's sarcastic rebuke that God's people are supposed to groan differently. We groan with 
expectancy. Verse 9, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? In the Hebrew, Micah uses two different words that can both mean groan. In verse 9, he uses one that we translate cry aloud. And the second in verse 10 is a word that can also be translated push. Thus the analogy with childbirth. Are you groaning or are you groaning? Now, it will not surprise you to hear that I have never given birth to a child myself. And for that, I am thankful. But we all understand Micah's point. Sometimes groaning is just groaning. It's not purposeful. It doesn't see a use in what's happening. Many people feel that way about the pain and the trials in their lives. But Christians, though they have pain, even the exact same painful circumstances as unbelievers, Christians groan differently. They groan as those who know, just as a mother in childbirth, that this pain has purpose. One author points out that when Micah asks, why do you cry aloud? He's not expecting an answer. He's expecting repentance. They are groaning without the expectancy of faith. They've forgotten the promises that God made to them. They've closed their eyes to God's purposes, and they have fixated on the crisis that's right in front of them. Now, we're at risk of this, too. How can you tell? How can you tell in a crisis if this is what you're doing? Do you ever find yourself getting angry with people close to you when they don't seem to think your situation is quite as bad as you do? Or do you find yourself grasping for control, willing even to be rude or deceptive to others because you've got to do what it takes to get things back on track? Or have you convinced yourself that whatever it is, this is just how it will always be because God is punishing you or because other people won't change? These markers should be warnings in our lives that something isn't right. Because as believers, our attitudes should not be shaped by our circumstances, even in crisis. Faith should look at crisis and see a crucible. We groan. Yes, we groan. It hurts. But we groan as those expecting the purifying good that God intends to bring about in fulfillment of his promise. In the Lead with Character Bible study, Steve tells the men they have two options when crisis comes. One is to complain, Lord, why me? And the other is to ask, Lord, how do you want to change me through this? How can I be faithful in this? And that response is what Micah expects of God's people. I should say, too, that our response is not just about us either. Yes, God is doing a purifying work in us through our crises, but many times God has a purifying work he wants to do in others through what's happening to us, through our adversity and how we respond to it. I've been changed by the faithfulness I've seen in times of trial from people in this church. Haven't you? Pam's faithfulness in the crucible of loss. Lauren's in great adversity. Stephen's in unemployment. 
those crises were not just for their good, but they were for my good, and I'm sure for many others. When Job experienced the intense trials of his life, his response to his wife's unfaithful groaning was not anger or rebuke. It was godly shepherding. Shall we accept good from God and shall we not receive evil? Faithful groaning remembers who God is and what he has promised. It sees a crisis as a crucible. Now, our expectations have a lot to do with this, don't they? If we think, if we expect that God's desire should be to give us an easy life, these crises really seem unnecessary and out of place. Many of Micah's contemporaries seem to think that God's promises of blessing were unconditional. And we know this lasted for a long time because this is what Paul was still having to address in his letter to the Romans. They still thought that God owed them a life of blessing. And with those expectations, the reality of life in the crucible just really makes you mad. This is not what I'm supposed to have. How you interpret the sudden onset of crushing pelvic pain and shortness of breath really does depend on whether or not you're pregnant, right? The expectations change everything. Paul Tripp's great lecture series on marriage is titled, What Did You Expect? The same expectations, I'm sorry, the same circumstances in two marriages will be interpreted very differently. If one couple's expectations are that marriage exists to make them happy and another is that marriage exists to make them holy, it changes everything. God's purpose for this life is not to make us happy. Now, that's not the same as saying that we cannot be happy. There is great joy in godliness. The joy of our salvation is always available. The joy of the Lord is an ever-present strength. But God has one purpose for your life to glorify him and enjoy him forever and for this to happen he has to make you ready for the kingdom of his son he's got to put you in that crucible and burn off those impurities as jake prayed he's got to make you holy and if that is your expectation for this life then when the trials come You groan differently. You still groan. It hurts. But you groan with expectation. Isaac Watts has the great line in his hymn, Am I a soldier of the cross? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? God does even now give his people times of peace and prosperity, and restful blessing. But he also gives bloody seas. He must give time in the crucible, without which we would never be made pure and strong in faith. In crisis, the groans of the unbelievers, the cries that Micah rebukes here, are faithless They see purposeless, undeserved suffering, and they just cry out. 
And Micah wants the cries of believers in crisis to sound instead like labor pains, real groaning through real pain, but uttered by those who know with certainty the glories of the salvation that God is working out in them. God's people groan with expectancy. And this is because of a second difference. God's people are to remember his sovereign plan. Micah points to this in both the structure and the content of these oracles. The structure is that general outline I mentioned before. Out of darkness, light. God brings the crisis. God delivers through the crisis. And God brings redemptive blessing. But also in these oracles are incredibly specific details about what God will do. God, in his giving Micah this prophetic vision, proves his sovereignty. Micah wants the people to be confident that what will come is not random. He gives them proof here that God is in control and that this does not take him by surprise, that all of this is part of God's purposeful plan. Even with the miraculous defeat of Sennacherib's armies, when Israel just woke up and the whole 65,000 armies are dead, Even with that, Israel's not out of the woods. They will experience captivity and exile because of their sin. And what Micah says in verse 10 is exactly what will happen to God's people a hundred years later. They'll be forced out of the city. They'll be kept in the camps in the open country as they await deportation. And then they will be taken into captivity in Babylon. God tells them the future to prove he is sovereign over it. Those scholars who say that Micah was written much later than all of the evidence suggests it was written say that only because of this passage. And their answer is, Micah can't have been written that long ago because no one knows the future. And since what Micah said actually happened, it can't be that old. Unless, of course, it's the word of a sovereign God who works out his will and accomplishes his good purposes. And to Israel, his purposes don't look so good. They will lose their temple, their king, and their city. Everything that they had used for a sense of security will be taken away from them. They think the presence of the temple and their city makes them holy. Now they're going to watch as the pagans come in and desecrate it before they destroy it. And they love idolatry. They think idols are fun. Great. Welcome to captivity in Babylon, the greatest center of idolatry that the world has ever known. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see how all of this is for their good. With the benefit of hindsight, in the trials of our own lives, we can oftentimes see how it's all for our good. When God takes our idols away and reveals their ultimate powerlessness, it causes us to turn back to him. We get how that crisis was a crucible. But here's the thing. Micah's not impressed with that. Micah doesn't think we should need the benefit of hindsight. He's telling God's people about the future. He's telling God's people God's plan so that as it is happening, they can in that moment understand it and respond in faith 
rather than unbelief. He says, if a people know for certain what God is going to do, they ought to be able to live in faith no matter what comes. Now, we don't get this level of specific detail about all the individual crises that are coming into our lives. But what else could we take away from this text except that we shouldn't need it in order to trust God? With his sovereign plans, light always comes out of darkness. Go back to the beginning. Satan will bruise the heel of Eve's seed, but his head will ultimately be crushed. The temple will be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. But in three days, it would be built up again in Christ. And that stone, that heavy, permanent stone, would be put at the door of the tomb. And yet he is risen. The Assyrians and Babylonians were eager to march into Jerusalem. They wanted to desecrate the temple. The text says they were excited to destroy what God's people had built. They wanted to see the godly fall. That's not unusual for unbelievers. And because they do not know God, because God has not given them his word the way he's given it to us, they see that crisis as the end of the story. They think they win. But the good news for us, as verse 12 puts it, is They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. This is one of the ways we have to see things differently. When we go through these crises, we have to remember the plan of a sovereign God so that what the world thinks is proof of their victory, we see as the very acts by which God will bring about the redemption of his people and the judgment of his enemies. I don't know which crises will come into your life. But I know that God is putting you in the crucible to make you holy so that when he gathers his enemies for destruction, you'll be ready for the assignment. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. You shall beat into pieces many peoples. Bruce Waltke explains verses 12 and 13. It's a little confusing to modern ears. He says the act of salvation takes place in two scenes, but the two scenes have a common hero, which is the Lord of all the earth, and a common setting, which is the threshing floor. And in the first scene, God plots the destruction of the nations by bringing them to the threshing floor. This is when they think they're winning the victory. They come into the temple and they desecrate it and they destroy it. They think they have victory over God's people. But in the second scene, Same God, same setting. He commands daughter Zion to pulverize them and to burn up their plundered, filthy wealth. What had seemed like a setback for the city of God is an opportunity for its advance. With God, it is always out of darkness, light. We should be able to respond to our trials in faith because like Israel, we know God's sovereign plan. Our futures are firmly established by a good and sovereign God. Therefore, our crises are crucibles. 
Jesus told Andrew and Philip, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls onto the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Out of darkness, light. When you look at the crisis, you've got to see a crucible. A third difference of God's people is that we are supernaturally equipped for the accomplishment of his purposes. See, between those two scenes in that act of salvation, God interrupts those commands to do something else, and it is to equip his people. In a crucible, it's the fire that does the refining, but in the Christian life, it's God who equips us for the task at hand. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 two things. One, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He tells them about this incredible thing that we have been given in the glory of Jesus Christ. But the second thing he tells us is that we hold this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have incredible, supernatural power for the overcoming of adversity. But it is not of us. It is of God. If we try to use our power, then we are by definition working for our purposes and not God's. Only his power is sufficient for the work that he has to do. And in the crises of our lives, in these crucibles where God is burning up and refining us, God is, it's like exercise, where God is breaking down the muscles of our own strength so that they can be built back up in his strength instead. If you want to thrive in the crucible, you've got to rely on God's power rather than your own. Look at what God says. I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. Kids, you've seen this picture in a book before of an ox on the threshing floor. And before we had complicated machines, it's how wheat was smashed until it was turned into grain and flour. They would take an ox, and they'd attach them to this wheel, and they would just walk around in circles with the grain underneath them. And the powerful legs and hooves would pound out the grain. And when it comes to how God will crush his enemies, Micah says, we're the ox. God tells his people, arise and thresh, beat in pieces many peoples, devote their gain to the Lord. God is going to use us. In fact, God is using us to save and to judge the world. As the gospel goes forth, we're grinding that grain. We're separating wheat and chaff based on belief and repentance. Do you know what the precious treasure is that we're to take and devote to the Lord? It's these people. It's the souls of the people that God has made. They've been taken captive by the world. And we are called to go out with the good news of Christ and to take them back. Before the gospel, they either receive deliverance through faith or condemnation through continued rebellion. 
And by his equipping, we will take every thought captive. We will forgive where it seems impossible. We will love our enemies. We will proclaim good news to the captives. We will tear down the strongholds of evil. Because he will make our horn iron and our hoofs bronze. God always equips us for the accomplishment of his sovereign purposes. So here's the good news. This is how, and it's how we know, that the church will prevail over the gates of hell. When you zoom out from your life and you look at the big picture of God's redemption, this is how it will happen. And this is how we can be certain it will happen because it is by God's strength and not ours and because it is his promise which will not be broken. And this exact same thing is how you and how you can be sure that you can thrive in the crucible. Your little trial that's not little to you. Your adversity. Your crisis. The same power by which the church prevails over the gates of hell is the power that perseveres you through it. I beg you. If you are still trying to get through these crises on your own strength, I beg you, abandon that approach willingly before God leaves you with no other choice. It takes supernatural equipping to thrive in the crucible of this life. And so equipped, we can go expectantly into the fire trusting the plan of our sovereign God. It's hard. It hurts. But where the world sees a crisis, you see a crucible.